The following podcast is a deep, shallow dive production. Okay, let's go. Seventy-three. President Nixon asked King Faisal of Saudi Arabia to accept only U.S. dollars as payment for oil and to invest any excess profits in U.S. Treasury bonds, notes, and bills. In return, Nixon offered military protection for Saudi oil fields. The same offer was extended to each of the world's key oil-producing countries, and by 1975, every member of OPEC had agreed to only sell their oil in U.S. dollars. The act of moving the dollar off of gold and tying it to foreign oil instantly forced every oil-importing country in the world to start maintaining a constant supply of Federal Reserve paper. And in order to get that paper, they would have to send real physical goods to America. This was the birth of the petrodollar. Paper went out, everything America needed came in, and the United States got very, very rich as a result. Hey everybody, happy Tuesday and happy Halloween, I should say. Anyway, today we are going to do a little bit of a hybrid episode and we're going to do a 712 episode. You haven't heard that term in a while, the 712, because those were episodes that were under 15 minutes. But lately, my big mouth has been yapping so much that these episodes have been between 30 minutes to an hour. But what I'm going to do today is, you know, honestly, I've been wanting to talk about this for so long. And so I realized that based on what we've talked about so far, this actually is a good time to at least get a baseline understanding of what the petrodollar is and how it could be, you know, even even at play right now in the Israel-Palestine situation, heck, the Ukraine-Russia situation, obviously the BRICS stuff we talked about in, in episode number three, where Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, along with now Iran, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Argentina, Ethiopia, and then they, were, they let one more country in. You know, those guys are trying to basically almost do away with the petrodollar. So anyway, I did think it made sense to really get a baseline understanding of what the petrodollar is. And, you know, fundamentally, the gentleman you heard in that clip, his name is Marin Katusa, M-A-R-I-N-K-A. T-U-S-A, and he wrote a book called The Colder War, How the Global Energy Trade Slipped from America's Grasp, and it's an excellent book. I read it, and this guy is legit, but what he really talks about is basically how after Russia pretty much was dismantled in the 80s by Reagan and, you know, really stopped being a superpower. And seriously, think think back to, for those of us old enough, think back to when we were growing up. You know, it was always USA versus USSR. You know, obviously there was the memorable Miracle on the Ice hockey game, which the United States team ended up defeating the Russian team. I don't even think we called them Russian back then. We called them Soviet Union, the Soviet Union team. You know, Rocky IV. <laughs> Seriously, think about Rocky IV. You know, Ivan Drago versus Rocky. But it was, I, I remember growing up with USA, USSR. You know, that, that uh, I think it was like the 
iron sickle or actually it was like the hammer in the sickle. But like, I seriously remember clear as day, the red USSR flag with that gold hammer and sickle. Uh, for any professional wrestling fans, Nikolai Volkov, if you remember that dude, you know, he teamed up with the Iron Sheik. God rest his soul. The Iron Sheik died, a, a, I think, like six months ago. But the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov against, like, Bob Backlund and Hulk Hogan. I mean, the USSR was the enemy. And if if not the enemy, they were they were the adversary for sure. And then that completely got dismantled. And so Marin's book, when he talks about the Colder War, he basically says how when Vladimir Putin got into power, which Putin's been in power basically since 2000. And then before that, you know, for a good 15 years from what I read, he he was a high ranking official. And so this dude has been planning the return to greatness. It's like return of the Mac, that song return of the Mac. It's like return to greatness for the Soviet union for like 30 years. I mean, these guys are patient. I seriously, I've said this before in other discussions, but when it comes to China and Russia, these dudes are, these dudes are in this for the long play. I mean, they are incredibly patient. You know, there's an entire thesis around uh, Xi Jinping, the ruler of China right now, that he has a plan, a 30-year plan that he wants to get implemented by 2050. And that 30-year plan obviously is to allow China to be the number one global dominant player. But think about that. Dude's got a 30-year plan. Like their patience level is something beyond what we have in the United States. That's for sure. All right, let's jump back in the petrodollar. So listen to Nixon right here. And this is in 1973. And this is basically when he pretty much screwed over the rest of the world and said, hey, you no longer can trade or use gold as the backing for oil purchases. And the other the other big point I wanted to make, and this played along with what I said, I think a couple episodes ago, seriously, these episodes all run together for me, but Saudi Arabia, the house of Saad, oh yeah, it was when I was talking about the economic hitmen concept and how... People like Saddam Hussein, Muammar Gaddafi, even the Shah of Iran in 73 to 79. You know, these guys did not play ball. They did not play ball with the United States and they went down. They went down. And the one country that did play ball was Saudi Arabia and the House of Saud, the ruling party at the time. They agreed to this concept of the petrodollar, which basically meant anyone buying oil from Saudi Arabia had to buy that oil in U.S. dollars. So it created an unbelievable marketplace for the U.S. dollar. Now, with that being said, obviously the U.S. dollar, until recently, I mean, we'll see what happens, 
but one of the main benefits of it was absolute the, the safety and security of the U.S. dollar. But I would argue that that all happened because of this petrodollar initiative, basically, and because of the fact that Nixon was able to accomplish this. You know, that is what has given. First of all, I think that's what's given the United States the global lead. That's what enabled us to basically disassemble the USSR, you know, eight years later, nine years later through the Reagan administration. And then that's also what has caused the United States to just become so much wealthier and so far ahead of everybody was this this marketplace of the U.S. dollar that got created by the petrodollar. So give this a listen from Richard Nixon. I have directed the Secretary of the Treasury to take the action necessary to defend the dollar against the speculators. I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserve assets, except in amounts and conditions determined to be in the interest of monetary stability and in the best interest of the United States. All right, sorry, that last part got cut off. It actually was the most important part and the biggest takeaway was that he basically said, hey, only do what is in the best interest of the United States. And you know what? I'm not mad at him for that. I mean, if I was the president of the United States, I would be looking out for the United States. Think about what I just said. Okay, let's hear from Marin again. This is another great clip that I think is really, you know, it's, it's a really good way to explain a complicated topic in a simplistic manner so we can grasp really how important the petrodollar is and just how big of a deal this was making this deal happen. The petrodollar is actually a device invented by Kissinger and Nixon. The standard of living of all Americans can be traced back to here, the vast oil-rich deserts of Saudi Arabia. In the early 70s, after the Arab crisis happened with the oil embargoes, OPEC basically tripled the price of oil to the Western world. And at that time, America realized that they were vulnerable because they were importing about 70% of all the oil they consumed. To secure a reliable foreign source of oil, U.S. President Richard Nixon sent his Secretary of State and National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger to Saudi Arabia for a secret meeting. By the way, really quick, one of the most powerful, influential people in our lifetime who was totally on the DL was Henry Kissinger. That dude had his hands, and gosh, maybe still, I think the guy's like 120 years old, but he's still alive. No, I think he's in his like 90s. That guy had his hand in everything, but you never knew it, and you never really heard of him. The result was a pact that still stands to this day. If Saudi Arabia, which at the time was the world's largest producer of oil, would sell the oil in U.S. dollars, America would defend Saudi Arabia and make sure the House Assad would stay in power. As a direct result of this U.S.-Saudi agreement, all other oil-producing nations also adopted the dollar as the de facto medium of exchange. Demand for it increased exponentially all over the world, and soon it had a new name 
the petrodollar. Your currency is only as strong as the demand for it, just like anything else, the supply and demand. Why the petrodollar is important, it causes a demand for the US dollar. A lot of Americans don't realize that over 70% of all the $100 bills in the world are actually outside of the US. There's more $100 bills in Russia than there are in America. This stockpile of US dollars in countries around the world is because oil is bought and sold using the greenback. If oil starts trading in non-petrodollars, such as gold or a basket of currencies, or if China and Russia start trading in yuan and ruble rather than US dollars, that demand isn't there. And the way of life for the average American will be done. It will be worse than the Great Depression. To date, anyone who's potentially threatened the status of the petrodollar hasn't fared well. Libyan strongman Muammar Gaddafi publicly pushed for a pan-African gold-backed currency that he would trade for Libya's oil. He was killed during a U.S.-backed revolution in 2011. And just a few short years before, Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein advocated selling oil for euros. At this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq. The U.S. invaded under the guise of looking for WMDs. Iraq did not have any weapons of mass destruction. And interestingly enough, after the Americans invaded, took over, put in their own government, the whole concept of selling oil in euros never surfaced again. Today, many countries resent the current petrodollar system, and their leading spokesperson is none other than Russian President Vladimir Putin. Americans should be very worried about what Putin can do. There is a new Cold War going on. It is the colder war. That is exactly what's going on. And who's in the center of this push? Vladimir Putin. And the petrodollar is so crucial to the Colder War. The only thing holding America right now at the top is the petrodollar. And let me make it very clear. If the petrodollar dies, so does America as a superpower. All right, seriously, that tied together a lot of things that we've talked about. And I know that was dramatic and God, I have two friends. I know they're going to call me tomorrow and be like, dude, you're so dramatic with this stuff. And that's cool. I mean, yeah, you know what? I'd rather be dramatic and think about things from every possible angle versus just, you know, taking taking the the narrative that I'm being told across the board. So, you know, he touched on so many things in that. He touched on the Saddam Hussein, the Muammar Gaddafi. You know, that's all legit stuff. Like if you look up Muammar Gaddafi and what he was trying to do with the dinar, which was basically trying to replace the U.S. dollar for all the pan-African countries and have them settle their oil transactions in their own currency. I mean, dude was taken out. I mean, it honestly, it doesn't take a genius to really piece this stuff together. If, if you're open to trying to piece it together, you know, instead of, you know, the narrative that, you know, Gaddafi was an awful human being could Saddam was an awful human being. Hell, 
they probably were awful human beings. You know, they might have been awful human beings. But what I'm saying is, were they awful for their own country? You know, where they were trying to protect their own country. Now, again, as soon as I say that, I'll have 500 things sent to me showing all the all the monstrosities they did against their own people. And again, just rise up to about 30,000 feet and think about all that and decide what makes sense to you. Seriously, decide what makes sense to you. But I will say this petrodollar concept and the petrodollar in and of itself, it is unbelievably important, unbelievably valuable. You look what's going on with BRICS right now. Like I said, episode three, go back and listen. Their entire goal is to try and weaken the petrodollar. You know, now most people are going to say, or not most, but a lot of people who are knowledgeable in the space, they'll say it'll never happen. The U.S. dollar is too strong. You know, these countries don't trust each other. They, they basically all kind of despise each other also. And I agree with that. But remember, there is that phrase, what is it? My, my enemy's enemy is my friend. It's something like that. My enemy's enemy... Yeah, something like that. All right, I just looked it up. It is. It's the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So even if Russia and China hate each other, or Russia, Iran hate each other, or China, Iran hate each other, do they hate the United States more? You know? Think about that. Each one individually. Do they individually... And it's not about hating the United States, but, you know, the U.S., we're, we're the, we're the, we're the, we're the bully on the block. I mean, we are, we are. I love this country with all of my heart and soul, but we're the bully on the block. I mean, that's calling a spade a spade. So are these guys willing to put apart their individual differences for that collective good? You know, it's also similar to Right now, thinking about, you know, Iran is Shiite Muslim, and then Hamas, Hezbollah, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, Jordan, all these countries, they're all Sunni Muslim. And that hate and division between Shiite and Sunni Muslims is, is like, well, at least what we've been told is visceral, like visceral. I, I use the word visceral a lot too, I've realized. But now, then it's like, okay, do, does Iran hate Israel more than it hates Sunni Muslims? And therefore, they are backing Hamas and Hezbollah, which are Sunni factions. You know what I mean? Think about that. So is the enemy of Israel so much bigger for them that they're like, okay, you know what? Let's put our, our Muslim differences aside, and we're going to go after these guys. And that concept is the same thing when it comes to, you know, countries like even, even India and China, those two countries really don't get along and they haven't gotten along for a long time. I think it's like they're competitive over who has the most billion people, but now India and China are part of BRICS. B-R-I-C-K, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. 
So they're, you know, coming together on bricks and the whole concept of bricks is to kind of combat, you know, the petrodollar, combat the G7. I swear this stuff is, it's Game of Thrones. It's really Game of Thrones. These countries are Game of Thrones. I remember watching Game of Thrones, which by the way, one of the top five shows of all time, and nobody can talk me out of that. But I remember watching it and being like, oh my God, there's no loyalty in anything. Like, like they'll turn on each other so fast if it means benefiting themselves or their greater good. And I swear, I feel like global geopolitics is the same thing. One day we're enemies. One day there's a bigger enemy. So we're friends. The next day that bigger enemy is weaker. So we're back to being enemies. I mean, it's really Game of Thrones in geopolitics, especially today. All right. I think, I think that's a good baseline of the petrodollar, but let me, let me tie it together with bricks. And this is a guy named Clay Morris. I've played him before. He's excellent. He's really excellent. He is a, I don't even know what the heck to call this guy, but he drops a lot of knowledge. He's really good. So in this clip, he's talking about how Saudi Arabia recently met with Russia and actually they've met with a bunch of countries. Saudi Arabia is slippery. They're slippery, man. They're slippery. But they've recently met with a bunch of countries to talk about settling their transactions, their oil transactions in other currencies outside the U.S. dollar. So listen to this. This changes everything. Watch. Xi Jinping made history today. The Chinese president landed in Riyadh. A red carpet awaited him. A historic Arab-China summit is to take place. And as the cameras of the world zoomed into Saudi Arabia, it was the United States that was watching most closely, with worry, with fear. America was watching its oil diplomacy fall apart. Another major blow to the U.S. dollar yesterday. Overnight, we learned that the BRICS nations are now expanding. Yes, Egypt has officially joined the BRICS Development Bank. So let's be clear what's happening right in front of our faces. The BRICS nations of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa are building their own reserve currency built on gold and other commodities like uranium, graphite, copper. The United States dollar is built on debt and the nothing, just like the never-ending story. What is the nothing? It's the emptiness that's left. What is the nothing? Well, Atreyu, the nothing is a failure of Western hegemony, which is built on a house of cards. And now Egypt is applying for full membership in the BRICS alliance, but they're joining the bank piece of this first. And also Turkey, Saudi Arabia, they're both applying for BRICS membership as well, away from the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. A Russia, Saudi, China, India currency backed by gold? It's game on. Now, BRICS is working to develop its own financial infrastructure, including a joint payment network, with some member states having already switched to trade in local currencies in order to reduce dependence on the U.S. dollar and the euro. The five BRICS economies currently account for more than 40% of the world's population and nearly a quarter of global GDP. So why is Saudi Arabia turning its back on the United States? Well, it can be traced back to one event. One big event, the start of the war in Ukraine. 
OPEC Plus and Saudi Arabia specifically warned the United States not to impose sanctions on Russia. They didn't listen. Europe didn't listen. Instead, they pig-headedly did the opposite, and we thought our relationship with Saudi Arabia would continue unabated. We'll just continue to buy your oil, send you weapons, and everything will be okay. Nope, not even close. In fact, this is a failure of the Biden administration of the highest order, and it will hurt America's ability to secure low-cost oil. So they're living in a fantasy world at the White House. Tomorrow, I'll also be laying out an affirmative framework for America's engagement in the Middle East to build on these important steps going forward. The bottom line is this trip is about, once again, positioning America in this region for the future. We are not going to leave a vacuum in the Middle East for Russia or China to fill. And we're getting results. Saudi Arabia has traditionally been one of the U.S. closest partners in the region and relies heavily on American military aid. By the way, I'm letting this go on because I didn't realize he tied Ukraine into it. And actually, I think it's really good and he does a nice job. But the one thing he just said was Saudi Arabia is one of the U.S.'s biggest al or has been one of the U.S.'s biggest allies in the region. Exactly. I've talked about that before when, you know, all these politicians say Israel is the United States only ally in the region. That's not true. Saudi Arabia is a huge ally. The petrodollar is huge. But now, of course, that's changing right before our eyes. The Saudis even launched jets and chemtrailed the skies with the colors of the Chinese flag. They didn't do that for the United States. So we've seen the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia give the middle finger to the United States over the past few weeks and openly build closer ties with China, its largest trading partner, and with Russia, and with whom it leads the OPEC plus grouping. Want to know just how bad it is? The Saudi Crown Prince ordering the execution of Washington Post reporter Jamal Khashoggi. And President Biden said during the campaign that he would treat Saudi Arabia like a pariah for this killing. We were not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. Instead, he flew to the Saudi kingdom, gave a fist bump to the prince, and just this week had a judge throw out the case against the prince. So he orders the killing of a journalist, an American journalist, and President Biden steps in and throws it away. So let's get this right. A U.S. journalist targeted for execution by the Saudi government. Biden said he would hold him accountable. Then he has the case thrown out. And the very same day, the Saudis sign a giant oil deal with the Chinese, therefore pushing the United States out of the way. I mean, this is a failure of the highest order for the Biden administration and also for justice. So what did China secure in this partnership with Saudi Arabia? Well, they signed 34 deals over the past 24 hours, including investments in solar panels, green energy, information technology, cloud services, transport, construction, but most notably, oil. It's a $30 billion agreement. So China and Russia are securing deals with Saudi Arabia, and Europe and the United States are getting screwed in the process. And Putin could deal the death blow to Europe if he stops sending uranium. The U.S. produces no uranium right now, zero, and Europe is starting to see how important nuclear power is. But if Putin shuts down their supply of uranium, then we're truly in the dark ages. But the precious minerals piece of this story is just as important because many of the minerals needed for nuclear energy come from China and Russia. In the United States, we have a shortage of these minerals to build nuclear reactors. So China will help provide these precious minerals to Saudi Arabia. And we are scrambling at home to try to get them out of the ground. So we will be watching this story very closely. 
because it's incredibly important. All right. You know what? That was a lot. I know. Honestly, I was going to cut out a bunch of stuff because I don't want to be all over the place with anything. But you know what? I left it in because I feel like we've been so singularly focused on, you know, really the past many episodes, Israel-Palestine situation. So I did want to make you realize all the things that were happening before this popped up and even gosh before now this is probably during the ukraine russia situation but i left that all in because there's a lot going on in a lot of different ways so even if you don't understand all the things clay just talked about and again dude is legit even if you don't understand all of that stuff, I'm going to come back to various pieces in future episodes. But the bigger thing that I want you to take away seriously is there's a lot of moving parts to this, okay? This is not a singular issue. This is not cut and dry. Everything that's going on globally, there's a lot of moving parts to all this stuff, and things are happening even when we don't realize it's happening. Right now, if you ask 20 people what's going on in the world, probably the only two answers they're going to give you is that, oh, Israel and Palestine, let's hope they know that's going on. Let's hope they know Russia, Ukraine is going on. And then, gosh, most people are going to say, Matthew Perry died, which again, rest in peace, Matthew Perry. By the way, I did want to make one comment. I had a couple friends reach out uh, to my thing yesterday about saying we have a weird relationship with celebrities. And one of my friends is an actor and she was like, you know, I don't think that's a really fair statement. And I said, well, what's not fair about it? I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's weird. And then I gave her the example I go, did you see what David Beckham posted? And she's like, no. I said, okay, he posted, you know, rest in peace, Chandler Bing. And I was like, dude, that is, I don't know. I don't find that appropriate. Chandler Bing didn't die. It was Matthew Perry that died. Now, granted, you know, I don't think David Beckham was was being mean or ill-intended with that. And obviously he associates Matthew Perry with Chandler Bing. But I don't know, for some reason that just, that to me, I don't know. It's just, it's just weird. I might be totally off with that. All right, I just found one more great clip from Marin that kind of ties why the petrodollar is important. So let's end Gosh, this is at 30 minutes, so we went over a 7.12 in this episode, but I do want to talk a couple other things. But let's end part one of this with Marin's final, I guess, summary. Why the petrodollar is important, it causes a demand for the U.S. dollar. A lot of Americans don't realize that over 70% of all the $100 bills in the world are actually outside of the U.S. There's more $100 bills in Russia than there are in America. This stockpile of U.S. dollars in countries around the world is because oil is bought and sold using the greenback. If oil starts trading in non-petrodollars, such as gold or a basket of currencies, or if China and Russia start trading in yuan and ruble rather than U.S. dollars, that demand isn't there. 
and the way of life for the average American will be done. It will be worse than the Great Depression. All right, again, I know that's dramatic, and I know that sounds like, oh, gosh, no way. But just think about life since March of 2020. How many times have you said, oh, my God, no way, I can't believe this is happening. Oh, my God, no way, I can't believe this is happening. I don't know. If you haven't, you are a better person than me. Now, granted, you're totally asleep and have no clue of what's going on in the world, but you are probably <laughs> a happier person than me, or at least more at peace for that matter. All right, I want to shift gears real quick. I want to play you something from Congressman Byron Donald. I like this guy. I really do. He's a Republican congressman from Florida. But, oh my God. Like every Republican right now, oh my God, these guys are warmongers. Like they just want war and spend more money. So listen, you know, Mike Johnson, Mike Big Johnson, the new Speaker of the House that nobody had ever heard of prior to last week. You know, this guy now is championing these spending bills and they're grouping Ukraine and Israel together. It's going to be a big omnibus bill. Just watch. So listen to Byron Donald on his interview on Newsmax. Uh, I totally believe that the aid resolution to Israel is going to pass. Uh, we are also going to make sure that it's paid for. Um, and so I think that's what you're going to see on the House floor. Also this week, we're going to go through um, another one of our appropriation bills. I believe we have enough time. Where we're going to get through two of those bills this week. And look, under Speaker Johnson, we are going to get to work. We have a responsibility to help our greatest ally in the region, Israel, while also making sure that we fund the federal government in a, respons in a responsible fashion. Uh, we're going to be able to do both. Last thing on new speaker, Big Johnson. This dude is like super Christian guy, like crazy, crazy religious Christian guy. And so I am starting to understand the religious, I guess, backdrop of the Israel and Palestine situation by speaking to some highly knowledgeable friends whom I might even try and get to come on the podcast and, and really give their take. But Big Johnson is big time Christian and Christians are big time Republicans and Republicans are big time supporters of Israel. Therefore, by the transitive property, Christianity and Judaism, obviously they're incredibly linked. I'm now realizing more than I knew before. And that's the link with the Republican Party. All right. I know all of you that are Christian or maybe even Jewish are laughing, thinking, what a dumbass. But that's okay. Because to me, that little connection is starting to crystallize a little. And I think it does matter. You know, you've got the Christian right, who is supportive of Republicans. And then that's probably why right now it's such a, you know, difference in terms of Republicans supporting and standing with Israel, really so much more than Democrats. Okay. Get a good laugh. I know I'm ignorant when it comes to that stuff, but that's okay. I've got some friends that'll tell me, <laughs> teach me, I should say. All right. To build on that a little bit, I'm going to read a comment that came from one of my good friends. I didn't get a chance to actually, I did ask her, but she hasn't got back to me. So 
I'm not going to say her name right now, but so she says, dude, exclamation mark. I like that. Just listen to today's DSD. She's talking about yesterday's. Admittedly, my perspective goes back to biblical times. That being said, two questions I have for those saying there should be a ceasefire. Number one, should the U.S. have agreed to a ceasefire after 9-11? So let me answer this one real quick. Honestly, I don't think these two situations are comparable. First of all, we've got hindsight on 9-11, and as everybody hopefully by now realizes, and if you don't, then I don't even know what to say. You know, the big difference was back then, we had no idea that a million innocent civilians were even being killed. You know, the social media and the coverage that exists right now, which shows, you know, what's happening in Gaza, we didn't have any of that. All we relied on what was which all we relied on was what they showed us on the news. And if you haven't learned anything, then learn this. They showed us on the news, especially back in, you know, 2001 to, gosh, maybe even like 2015, they showed us what they wanted to show us. So, you know, one big difference that to me just doesn't allow this to be comparable is you didn't see the devastation as it was taking place. Maybe if we did, we would have called for a ceasefire back then. There would have been humanitarian I guess, request for a ceasefire back then. But right now, if you are at all looking at the other side of this story, and again, whether it's Sean King's page, CNN themselves, MSNBC, honestly, at this point, the, the, the misery that the people of Gaza are, are suffering on a daily, if not hourly basis, that, that stuff is popping up everywhere. You know, I don't think you can compare these two situations. And actually, if you did, I bet you we would have called for a ceasefire back then in Iraq if we knew really what was happening. By the way, another thing that I just thought of was, so, you know, you're seeing obviously a lot of coverage on mainstream media in the networks that, you know, traditionally lean left. And I'm talking again, CNN, MSNBC, NBC, ABC, CBS, all that. I played for you the clip yesterday from CNN. I've played for you previous clips from CBS and all that. But I will tell you the one network where you don't see any, I'm talking zero empathy toward anything or anyone on the Palestinian side is Fox. You do not see any empathy or any any anything besides terrorist, 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 Hamas, 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 terrorist, 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 Hamas, Hamas, Hamas on Fox on any of those guys' shows: Megyn Kelly, uh, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram. None of them. I mean, nothing. You watch Fox; it is, you know, if there ever was completely one-sided reporting, it's on Fox right now. And so that's pretty funny. If you're a big Fox fan, if you are into that network, think about that. So like they're doing exactly what you criticized the other side, MSNBC, CNN, ABC, CBS, who else? NBC. They're doing exactly what you 
you've criticized them doing for the past three years. Oh man, I love the discrepancies. I really do. I love the discrepancies because they truly allow you to see everything for what it really is and call a spade a spade. All right, this is funny. Almost on cue as I was recording this, I got a few different text messages and my one friend is like, hey, did you hear Netanyahu's speech? And obviously I didn't because I was yapping to you guys. And so here is Netanyahu's speech. Sorry, I got tongue-tied there. Anyway, I told you I'm going to leave some mistakes in, especially when they're kind of funny. So, Or if I make a funny, funny uh, noise, which I just did. Okay, so here is his speech. Give this a listen. And ironically, it does tie some of the things we've been talking about this episode. I want to make clear Israel's position regarding a ceasefire. Just as the United States would not agree to a ceasefire after the bombing of Pearl Harbor or after the terrorist attack of 9-11, Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of October 7th. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says that there is a time for peace and a time for war. This is a time for war. Quick interjection. Decide how you feel about that statement he just said. Okay. A war for our common future. Today we draw a line between the forces of civilization and the forces of barbarism. It is a time for everyone to decide where they stand. Israel will stand against the forces of barbarism until victory. I hope and pray that civilized nations everywhere will back this fight because Israel's fight is your fight. All right, really quick. For some reason, that statement of his, God, it like gave me flashbacks when he says Israel's fight is your fight. And I realized it was really similar to what Zelensky said in terms of Ukraine, meaning like Ukraine's fight is your fight. We're fighting for you. So I went back to try to find some video and I haven't been able to find video yet because, oh my God, there's so much video since then. This would have been like at the beginning of that conflict. But I did find a Washington, a Wall Street Journal article from July 22nd, 2022. So a year and a half ago, it says, Ukraine's Zelensky says a ceasefire with Russia without reclaiming lost lands will only prolong war. So anyway, definite flashbacks. I don't know if... If I'm the only one remembering that, but I remember clearly so much talk from Zelensky and Ukraine about, you know, we're fighting this war for you, you know, our war is your war, all that. Okay, let's listen to the rest of this. Because if Hamas and Iran's axis of evil win... All right, sorry for all the interruptions, but it's going to keep you from having to rewind it. I thought that was interesting. Obviously, he brought up Iran, but then... The term axis of evil is back. So axis of evil. And by the way, another thing to just put on your radar to keep an eye on, and I actually am going to take credit for this because I was the first person to break the, the Islamic terrorist group for dummies video. I, I take credit for breaking that. But now you will hear, or I've been hearing 
ISIS. All of a sudden, ISIS is in the mix. Not that they're involved in this, but they are equating ISIS to Hamas. So just put this on your radar. See if you hear ISIS being attached to Hamas or being attached. Yeah, yeah. let's just leave it at that. And then secondly, looks like the access of evil from the George W. Bush days and all of that, that phrase seems to be making a reappearance. You will be their next target. That's why Israel's victory will be your victory. But make no mistake, regardless of who stands with Israel, Israel will fight until this battle is won. All right. I mean, again, I can't blame him. If I was prime minister of Israel, I probably would have given the same exact speech. But I definitely do not think ceasefire is even in the the, the realm of possibility there. All right, next, I'm going to play for you a clip from the person I voted for in 2016, if you can believe that. People who are calling for a ceasefire now do not understand Hamas. That is not possible. It would be such a gift to Hamas because they would spend whatever time there was a ceasefire in effect rebuilding their uh, armaments, creating stronger positions to be able to fend off uh, an eventual um, assault by the Israelis. So we're in a very different world. I don't think it had to be the world we're in, but that's where we are and we've got to figure our way uh, forward through it. You know, it's so funny when I listen to certain things, God, it like triggers something or a thought. And the one thing she said was, she's like, if we have a ceasefire, it'll give Hamas time to rebuild their armaments or whatever. You know, I started thinking, obviously, October 7th, what they did was awful. But I haven't really heard of any major attacks since then. So we're, you know, two weeks into this. Actually, we're 20-something days, 24 days into this, and you really don't hear, or I haven't heard of any major additional offenses. So like when she says rebuild their armaments, God, maybe they, I don't know, maybe they don't have any more armaments because you don't hear anything else in terms of them being on the the attack. Right now, it's been primarily... Israel on the attack in Gaza. I mean, if I'm wrong about that, definitely send me send me whatever, but I can't really remember I guess major casualties post October 7th on the Israeli side. All right, yesterday I talked about uh, Pierce Morgan. Again, I think he's doing some great coverage and then one of the guys he's interviewed, and he really has interviewed people from both sides. Again, that's Pierce Morgan. His show is uncensored. I watch it personally on YouTube. I realize maybe I just had a issue with my uh, Apple Podcast. Maybe it's in podcast form, audio as well. So I'll look at I'll look that up again. But here was another part of his interview with Naftali Bennett. Again, this is the former Prime Minister of Israel before Netanyahu. I mentioned him yesterday. So let's listen to. This portion of his interview, and by the way, this was an interview done on Saturday. I watched it Saturday night. Dang, insert Ray D is lame on Saturday night joke. 
That's funny. First question, I guess. Do, do you think he was right to say that you've eliminated thousands of terrorists? Uh, Hamas is claiming, and we have to take their figures at their word, and I'm not sure how credible they are, but they're claiming 7,000 Palestinians have died since October the 7th. But we don't know how many of those are terrorists and how many are completely innocent civilians, do we? Well, Israel and the IDF always uh, target uh, the Hamas terrorists. Uh, yes, sometimes the Hamas terrorists use civilians as uh, human shields. All right, really quick, and I'm going to play something for you later. When he says they always target Hamas terrorists, and sometimes Hamas terrorists use civilians as human shields. So how does that work? But I wouldn't uh, trust Hamas's uh statements uh, as we saw just uh, a few days ago uh, it was islamic jihad who shot a rocket at a gazan hospital hamas claimed it was israel the whole world uh, echoed that for about 24 hours until it turned out that it's a total lie and it indeed was islamic jihad okay real quick on this obviously we played a ton of clips about the hospital situation i think it was two episodes or three episodes ago and i literally looked up after listening to this and that's why i stopped it i looked up the most current news to see if you know anything definitive has come out from an independent fact finding or independent analysis and nothing has come out from an independent analysis on that hospital situation obviously all the news outlets that did originally say it was israel you know those guys did retract that story but like i said i mean it doesn't take a genius to figure out that if bombs a bomb dropped on a hospital u.s supplies those bombs to israel that's a bad look so you know maybe we don't really want that to be blasted out by our own new york times and all that so that retraction that came for that i mean that's think think what you will of that but like i said there is no independent verification on what actually took place with that hospital bombing a few days back so I, I wouldn't assign too much weight to their words, especially given that they're a group of uh, rapists and murderers. So why would you trust them? No, no I, I completely concur that you don't have to take their figures uh, just because they say these are the figures. But what is clear is a lot of civilians, innocent people, uh, as well as, I presume, some terrorists have been killed so far by the Israeli uh, uh, response with the airstrikes. It's clear also that a major ground invasion will massively increase the number of innocent people who die. And I've asked this question to a lot of guests in the last three weeks. I'll ask it to you. What is a proportionate response? Because people are already saying, look, 1,500 people in Israel were killed. It was barbaric. It was evil. It was an act of horrible terrorism. But if 7,000 people, or several thousand, whatever the correct number is, have already been killed in Palestine, what is the number which becomes unpalatable even for people on the Israeli side? So it's not about uh, proportionality to what happened, it's about preventing what will happen. What we've realized is that we have a ISIS state on our border. Okay, that's funny. I promise I did not really know that was coming. Uh, people who will rape, murder, dismember bodies, kill babies from point blank. So it's not about what happened, it's about the future. How do we uh, protect and defend Israel? There's only one way, total eradication of Hamas. So it, when you think about proportionality, it's not about uh, the, the numbers, it's about how we get them out. But I will say, uh, Piers, that IDF is uh, very focused on uh, preventing unnecessary deaths. That's why we went out of our way, according to international law, and we allowed roughly 
800,000 Gazans from northern Gaza to evacuate away from harm's way. So in the, the theater of operations, is, as has been already made public, is going to be primarily northern Gaza. And we're allowing ample time, giving precaution, warning, you know, bending over backwards to reduce the amount of uh, civilian casualties. But what happens to those 800,000 Gazans if all their homes are completely destroyed? What do they come back to? Do they come back? If they can't come back, where do they go? Where do they live? Pay attention. Look, uh, Israel's responsibility is not to provide housing and a high quality of lives to an enemy state. I don't recall America or Britain uh, asking those questions about Japan or Germany during World War II. Uh, our goal is to minimize civilian casualties, but our main goal is to eradicate ISIS Hamas. That's the main goal. Now. We were in the southern part, which is sort of the safe haven area, or we've created safe haven corridors. We are allowing anyone to provide water, food, and medicine in the safe haven corridors. So we're about protecting lives. All right, I'm going to stop that there. We're going to come back to that and then the rest of that interview as well. I, again, I will say I think Pierce Morgan handles himself really well in these because I always thought Pierce Morgan was a hothead, but man, when I'm looking. At, or I, when I'm watching these interviews, and by the way, when he's interviewing the, the pro-Palestinian people, man, they rip his head off, I guess for stuff from the past, I don't know, but he really does handle himself uh, really well. I'm, I'm learning from Pierce Morgan how to control my emotions. All right, next thing. I've got to give a shout out to DSD Nation. That's Deep Shallow Dive Nation. Well, because they keep sending me, man, I've got so many good clips that people are sending me. And if you've been friends with me throughout my entrepreneurial ventures, you'll, you'll know that I try to turn everything into a nation. I think it started with the LA Matadors professional boxing team in the World Series of Boxing that my boy Rich Orozco and I did back in 2012, where we created Matador Nation. That was good times. That was really good times. Rich has gone on to head up the LAFC Los Angeles Football Club, which is the most exciting show on turf. Seriously, if you are a soccer fan and live in the Los Angeles area, go check out LAFC. Though their their events are amazing. Seriously, such a incredible atmosphere he's built there. And then if you are friends with Rich, if you are a mutual friend, Tell him Ray D gave him a shout out because I know he won't listen to my podcast because he's Rich is too cool for school. So tell him, tell him Ray D gave him a backhanded, a backhanded shout out. All right. Anyway. All right. So this next clip, a Armenian friend of mine, part of DSD Nation sent me this and she said, hey, you've got to listen to this. This was a great it was a great episode, so I watched the whole thing. This, again, is on the Patrick Bet David podcast, the PBD podcast. I would say he, along with Pierce, uh, Pierce Morgan, those guys are really doing the best coverage of this, and Patrick has got a really, he's got a really diverse and nice team with him there, and he brought on a gal named Anna Kasparian, and she's actually a personality herself. She's on a show called The Young Turks. Now, I don't watch that guy. 
His name is 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 Jenk Jenk Uger, I think. Although you know, it's funny. I have a clip from him, which I'll play either today or in an upcoming episode. But anyway, Anna is on is on his show, The Young Turks. But then she was on the PBD podcast, and she got into a really heated discussion with one of the host guys on the show, Adam. And Adam is Jewish, so obviously. You know, again, if you're if you're Jewish or if you are Palestinian or let's say practicing Muslim, you know, I get it. This is very personal to you. You know, I totally empathize and understand that. And so therefore, obviously, either side is going to have, you know, incredibly strong opinions. And honestly, it's probably hard to look at things objectively if you know, if you've got real skin in this game and if you have a real true connection, whether it's from being Jewish or from being Muslim and you really, you know, like I said, have skin in the game and Adam on the PBD podcast, he's got skin in this game, obviously. And so, you know, I think it's hard for him to necessarily be objective on things when on, on most other takes, I have actually found him very objective, but I want you to listen to this interaction between the two of them because, first of all, I think it's really good, and I think it does touch on something that, you know, is a, is a disconnect for me. In It's this whole human shield concept, you know? Obviously, that's something that gets said a lot, but then at the same time, you hear, you know, people like Naftali Bennett in the previous interview saying, we try hard not to, you know, not to hurt civilians, but then Hamas uses them as human shields. Like, how does that work? You know, how does that possibly work? You know, nobody is that good of a sharpshooter, especially in a crisis situation. So, you know, there's no way you're going to be able to kill the Hamas terrorist and spar the, or save the civilian. So give this a listen. This was a pretty heated discussion and, I thought pretty good and worth listening to. Let me ask you a very you direct at, question. Do you think Israel no, no, no. wants to kill yes, innocent civilians? I do. You think I Israel do. generally I wants to kill? I do. What I evidence do. do you have of Be that? The evidence is they are refusing to do special operations and instead are relying on bombing areas where they know, they know civilians are at. And then they'll turn around and say, well, Hamas is using them as, uh, as human, human shield. shields. So if someone was so shooting so at so you, if if an armed man grabbed a family member of yours, do you have kids? No, I don't. Oh, do you have, okay, your mother. You talked about yeah. your mother. If an armed gunman grabbed your mother, had a gun to her head, okay, and he is confronted by the authorities, by law enforcement, and law enforcement, they just decide, you know what, we're not going to negotiate, we're not going to do anything, we're just going to shoot the hell out of both of them, and then they come to you and say, well, your mother, sorry, was a human shield, would you accept that argument? That's not the question, though. Would you accept they're, that they're, argument? You're, you're making up a, a random story that what my mother is held captive. Hamas and then, using Palestinians as human shields is not a justification to indiscriminately bomb the hell out of that region, knowing full well that the majority of people who are going to end up dying are not Hamas militants who are underground in the tunnels. OK, OK, it's the innocent civilians who are going to lose their lives. So. All right, I'll have to try to find the rest of that because that was really good. But she definitely makes some great points. And then somebody else sent me this. I'm going to read it to you because, honestly, this is a good point as well. It's, it's like a, a graphic. It says, if a school shooter 
was hiding out in a classroom, would it ever be ex- would it ever be morally acceptable to bomb the entire school? Let me read that again. If a school shooter was hiding out in a classroom, would it ever be morally acceptable to bomb the entire school? So that is another good point. That is a very touchy subject, I know, but you know what? We got to call a spade a spade and talk about everything. So give some thought on how you think about all that because there's going to be some things that I'm going to play that's going to, you know, basically bring up that discussion again. And like I said the other day, you know, if stuff like that gets you triggered, then there's probably some truth in it. You know what I mean? The truth triggers people when it's the truth they don't want to hear. So again, I just ask you to, you know, as much as possible, and again, I guess this applies to anybody who maybe doesn't directly have skin in this game. If you have skin in this game, I totally understand that is a much bigger ask. But for those that don't, you know, let's rise above 30,000 feet. Let's look down and let's try and be impartial toward things. All right, the next thing I want to play you again, somebody else sent me this. This is once again, Jake Tapper from CNN. If you don't know who that is, just Google Jake Tapper. He's actually one of their top anchors. So I'm, I'm sure as soon as you see his face, you'll recognize who that is. But this was an interview Jake Tapper did with Noah Katzman, who is, who, who's Jewish, lives in Israel. And I guess his brother Haim was killed, but the interview was not what I was expecting from Noah, the brother. So give this a listen. Noah Katzman, may Haim's memory be a blessing. I'm so sorry for your loss. Can I say one more thing? Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, yes. Yeah, so I want, what I wanted to say is the most important for me, and I think also for my brother, was that his death won't be used to kill innocent people. Um, and sadly, um, my government, our government, my government is using cynically the death of people to just kill. Like they promised us, it was going to bring. It's going to bring us. Um, like security, but of course it's not security because they always tell us, oh, that if we're going to kill enough Palestinians or they're going to, so it's going to be better for us. But of course it never brings us peace and it never brings us better lives. It just brings more and more terror and more and more uh, people killed like my brother. And I don't want anything to happen to people in Gaza like it happens to my brother. And I'm sure he wouldn't have any uh, either. So that's my call to my government to stop killing innocent people. And that's not the way that brings us peace and uh, security to people in Israel. Noe Katzman, thank you so much. And may your brothers, may Chaim's others, may Chaim's memory be a blessing. Thank you. All right. You know, I've been having a lot of good conversations with my, my neighbor, Matt Leinert, former Heisman Trophy winner. And, you know, one thing we texted yesterday, and I'm going to read you part of what he wrote. He said, you know, we were talking about a bunch of different stuff. And he said, I guess I'm trying to see the good in people, which is such an awesome statement. And, you know, I am trying as well. I really am. I'm trying to see the good in people. And then what's funny is after he had texted me that is when I started recording this episode. And then, 
during this episode, another friend sent me this totally unrelated. He's like, hey, you know, if you want, put this in because this is something that is good. And so listen to this because it really is good. And so this took place in New York and it was put on by the organization Jewish Voice for Peace, I think last Friday. Here in New York, thousands of people led by Jewish Voice for Peace converged at Grand Central Station Friday night for the largest sit-in protest the city's seen in over two decades. Among the massive crowd were elected officials, rabbis, and academics. New York police arrested nearly 400 people. Before she was arrested, I spoke with Rosalind Pacheski, a professor of political science at Hunter College. We believe in justice and the right to live for everyone, but Palestinians have been the victims of oppression for 75 years, and it has to stop. That's why we're here, to say not in our name. I am older than the state of Israel. Too bad Rosalind Pacheski is not in charge, seriously. All right, listen, I'm going to end it there. And I want to say the most heartfelt thing I've said probably to date, and that is love for the people of Israel, love for the people of Gaza, Palestine, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, hopefully Rosalind Pacheski's thought process trickles down into, actually trickles up into the folks that are in charge because I truly think there is a disconnect in the feelings of the people towards one another versus maybe the governments and the leaders towards one another. So... That's it, everybody. Call spade a spade. Talk to you soon. Oh, by the way, small chance there will not be an episode on Wednesday. I have some work boost liquid vitamin related things that unfortunately are going to take up most of my day. So I don't think I'm going to get to get behind the microphone, but I will try. If not, then we'll see you guys on Thursday. All right. Talk to you soon. This episode was brought to you by Boost Liquid Vitamins. Wake up, take your boost, start your day. Drink your vitamins, build your immune system with Boost. Available on Boost.com.